Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's another episode of Business of Film, episode number 62. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. Today on the episode, we have entertainment lawyer Danny Weber with us. Uh, Danny is a partner at Hall Weber, based here in Toronto. Uh, They are one of the premier entertainment law firms here. They do a lot of independent film work, so much of our conversation today today is geared towards uh, independent film, and we cover... uh, topics related to, or we are covering the topic related to, uh, actor and talent negotiations. So tons to think about. We unearth all types of uh, topics that uh, we can only really skim the surface of, but still, because we cover such a wide breadth of information uh, on this episode, uh, it will really give you a lot to think about for your projects and some of the questions that you should be asking. And we also get into things like the differences between SAG and ACTRA and how to contract uh, SAG and marquee talent working out of the States in whatever jurisdiction that you might be working with or working in around the world. So lots of really great stuff on this episode. Danny, thank you for taking the time for coming on the show. And if you are listening to this uh, on whatever pod catching device that you may be listening to this on please push that little subscribe button uh subscribe to the feed and you'll you'll get it weekly uh in in your uh in your ears every week more business of film Uh, so enjoy this episode please connect with us on twitter if you so desire ask us any questions that you like uh we had a fun time last week answering some twitter questions and we'd be happy to do more of that on the show should you so desire so uh thanks again for listening everybody and uh, here we go with episode number 62 as we dive into talent negotiations Are, are you ready to do this thing (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. As ready as I'll, I'll ever be. <laughs> <laughs> this is really exciting, actually. I, I got to tell you, because uh, we, we, we've been dancing around the idea of, uh, I guess, star contracts and star negotiations and the ins and the outs of that, but we've never actually deep dived into it. So uh, I'm, I'm quite excited to have this conversation with you. I think it's going to be really interesting for our listeners. So uh, this, is, this is awesome. So why don't you just, you just take a minute and tell our listeners who you are and what you do. Uh, sure. Um, my name is Danny Weber. I'm an entertainment lawyer um, working in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, we've got a, a boutique entertainment law firm, so we represent a lot of independent producers. And, uh, you know, in that capacity, we certainly get involved with negotiating a lot of actor contracts. Um, you know, typically independent uh, films that are lower budget uh, movies. And so, you know, I'm not used to negotiating with Tom Cruise or Arnold Schwarzenegger for uh, $20 million, but, uh, or however much they, they make. But, um, you know, the, the, uh, when you're dealing with independent films, there's a whole other kind of level of how that works. And, you know, certainly it's, it's uh, even more important to have marquee talent in, in those kind of films as well, um, because that, that really drives a, a lot of the distribution. For sure. I, and I think that, that's kind of a, a great place to start is a lot of the, the projects that we're talking about specifically on this podcast are independent films and bringing in marketable or marquee elements to those films. So where do you start in the process? So producer, um, I, I'm, I'm gathering the producer 
or the point at which you enter the conversation with the producer is when the producer says, hey, I've got so-and-so interested in the role. Or maybe you should just clarify when you typically enter into the conversation with the producer about the actor. Uh, well, it depends. I mean, certainly uh, with a lot of our clients, yes, that's when we'll we'll come in. Is is when there's you know there there is a project that is greenlit and they're starting to cast and and uh, we're brought in to help negotiate the actual terms with with uh, with the actors that they've really targeted. Um, but we also do get involved at the development stage because uh, you know it, it's 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 also very important to try and attach talent to to projects, especially independent films where, you know, that's driving a lot of the, the financing. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, uh, clients will come to us to try and help to uh, attach talent it just just in terms of how you navigate the process of of uh, you know securing a commitment from from an actor uh, you know either before or after they've they've secured their financing and sometimes that can be a bit of a chicken and egg kind of situation where you know you're you're trying to secure talent and uh, in order to get financing and. The, the performers, agents, and lawyers are reluctant to offer that kind of commitment until you do have the financing. So kind of navigating that balancing act is, is also part of, uh, part of the whole game. So, so let's unpack that a bit, because obviously I think that's a great place to start is the producer that wants to, I guess, attach some talent to help with either the raising of the financing, creating the package. So when you enter those those negotiations, are you, uh, I mean, just paint a picture for us. What is the story of how that works? Are you putting together a pair play offer on a piece of paper, submitting it to the agent? Are you getting on the phone with the agent or manager? Just paint that picture for, for us a bit. Yeah, well, you know, when when you first get in touch with a, an agent or, or manager, uh, you know, the first question they're they're always going to ask is whether you have financing because, uh, you know, projects come and go, and, uh, and and it's very difficult from their perspective to judge, you know, whether a product a project really has. Um, you know, any viability, whether it's real. And, uh, you know, especially when you're approaching talent that is in demand, that has, you know, uh, offers on the table regularly and have, you know, can pick and choose what they're working on, uh, their agents are reluctant to waste time, so to speak, with projects that just they can't be sure are going to get off the ground. So, uh, you know they're they're looking to to us to uh, you know provide a pay or play commitment, which and and what that means is 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 basically a guarantee that um, you know if they attach their their clients to the project and take them off the market that they'll get paid whether or not the show gets made or not. Uh, and uh, obviously that's a very difficult, uh, risky position for an independent producer to put themselves into. So, uh, you know, part of the negotiation is trying to avoid that at all costs. And sometimes what that means is uh, you don't end up with your ideal um, solution, which is, is to have, you know, a guaranteed locked-in star uh, for a particular time frame. But um, you know, sometimes the, the compromise is that you can get an attachment letter where, um, where the actor will 
commit in the sense that they'll say, yes, I'm very interested in this, in this part. I've read the script. I think it's great. I would love to do it subject to you getting the financing and subject to, uh, you know, me being available whenever it's going to be in production. So in, in other words, they'll, they'll commit to the idea of it, but not necessarily uh, a specific time frame guarantee. So that way they can still go off and, and, and look for other, um, parts and, you know, if the timing works out, then then great. And and sometimes you you just end up having to wait for them to uh, to finish something else if if they do land some other part. Now, on the on the topic of pair play, this is interesting. I mean, do you find that is is the pair play at least in the deals that you've done and you've seen, is that words on a piece of paper or is that money in an escrow account somewhere? Well, yeah, that, I mean, that's a good point uh, because, uh, yes, agents will, will uh, very often be looking for both things, both uh, a pay-or-play guarantee, which is a con- contractual commitment, um, but also uh, they, they are looking to have money put in the pot in, in, a, in an escrow account, which, which basically means, um, you know, advancing the money to the, the actor's agent uh, where it's held in trust pending, um, you know, the project actually happening. And the reason they do that is because, you know, a pay or play guarantee is uh, in some cases only worth the the paper it's written on because, uh, you know, they're getting a guarantee from independent production company that doesn't necessarily have a lot of resources behind it. So if they they default on that, uh, that guarantee, it, it, you know, they, they doesn't, help them that much to come after the 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 producer um you know with a with a claim uh when they know they won't be able to really successfully achieve anything so uh so yes that that puts even further added pressure on the producers to actually have the cash flow to come up with with money to put in deposit for for the actors sometimes you know a month or two ahead of the production schedule starting. So one of the things we, we try to do with that is to negotiate um, uh, to perhaps put a deposit into escrow, which is in, you know p- perhaps just a percentage, maybe 10% of, of the amount um, to put, to put uh, into trust, just as, as a goodwill gesture so that we know, so that the, the agents know that the producers are serious and that they you know, do sort of have skin in the game. Do you find that that makes a big difference in the ability to actually have uh, not a negotiation, because we aren't really talking about negotiating the specific terms, but just in being able to make the attachment? Does, does that, like, uh, I guess on a percentage scale, if, if you will, how much does that help? How much does that really sort of drive home the idea that a producer will have this much better of a chance of getting somebody? Is this like 100% or is this 10%? Well, I think it depends on, on the producer and their own track record and their own history with with uh, with the actors. I, you know, I, I think in the independent film world, there, there are certain producers that, um, you know, even though they're independent producers, they still have a very strong track record. They put out an, a number of movies per year. They build up a relationship with the the agents, and in some cases, directly with the actors. You know, where they've worked with the same actor numerous times on numerous projects and, and and you know that certainly um, alleviates some of those concerns and makes it easier to to um, 
to, to secure talent from, you know, perhaps an agency that you have a, a relationship with, whether it was with that particular actor or, or maybe with another, another actor that they've represented in the past where everything's kind of worked out fine. Right. Um, but, but generally speaking, if, you know, if you're a new independent producer that, that doesn't really have a, a, you know, necessarily a track record or you're approaching uh, agents, uh, you know, cold without any kind of, um, a relationship, then absolutely that that uh, makes it a huge difference to be able to uh, you know show them that the money is is real and and secured and and available. Danny, you you gave a much better answer than question that I asked. So I, I asked you how long <laughs> I asked you how long a piece of string was, and you actually gave a very concrete answer. So thank you for that answer, and and, mm-hmm. and I retract my question because it was a stupid <laughs> question. Shouldn't have asked it, but I did, and you gave a good answer, so thank you. Um, so, okay, a lot of our listeners are U.S.-based, Canada-based, Australia, um, the U.K., uh, and uh, all from pretty much all over the world, but those are where a lot of the major production centers are, and naturally, as you would tend to think, those are where most of our listeners are. Um, right. Now, obviously, we can't talk about unions that are specific to, say, the UK or uh, or you know Australia because that's just jurisdictionally where we don't typically work. But where we do do a lot of work is with SAG and with ACTRA, SAG, the mm-hmm. US union, ACTRA, the Canadian union here in Canada. And obviously, with the, the dollar the way it is, um, it just so happens to be that um, the, the Canadian dollar being extremely cheap relative to the U.S. dollar, there will be, and there currently is, a much higher demand for production certainly to take place uh, here in Canada and also in other jurisdictions around the world. So right. can you just talk about the, uh, as you've put it in, in kind of this working document that that the, that we were sort of going back and forth on before this call, the territorial status of uh, contracting with SAG versus contracting with ACTRA, some of the differences and some of the things that producers should be uh, cognizant of. Sure. So, so the way that it works, um, and, and in particular, uh, like you say, I, I, I'm in Canada, so that's primarily uh, the, the projects that I work are are in Canada, which is which is under ACTRA jurisdiction, and uh, uh, UBCP in in British Columbia is is sort of an offshoot of of ACTRA. Um, and, and the way it works with with um, most of the projects we work on is kind of a hybrid uh, relationship bet- between ACTRA and SAG because typically um, uh, on uh, production service uh, uh, um, shows and and well even Canadian shows as well uh, very often the case is is that um, usually one or or two uh, SAG actors are are hired as as lead performers on uh, on those shows and and then uh, you know most most of the other actors are ACTRA or UBCP members and so the the way that works is is everyone is is technically working under ACTRA jurisdiction and uh there's a reciprocal agreement between uh ACTRA and SAG-AFTRA 
I'm just going to call him SAG because SAG after is too much of a mouthful. But um, so uh, and it's called Global Rule One, and SAG has has a has um, this relationship they they call Global Rule One, which which means that all SAG actors have to work under uh, the Global Rule One memorandum when they're working under uh, you know foreign territories that that have um, you know other other guild jurisdiction. And basically what that means is that the SAG actors have to work under SAG uh, working rules and minimum rates, and they're entitled to get SAG pension health and welfare, fringe payments, and SAG residuals. So essentially they're working under the, the basic terms of, uh, of SAG and within, within uh, ACTRA territory. And everyone else that's Canadian uh, or wherever they are is working under that guild's jurisdiction. So you end up with actors actually potentially working under different working rules, and, and that can, can be a bit complicated, and you have two systems for how residuals or use fees are, are calculated, and so that definitely adds some complication to how actors are contracted and how uh, administratively um, you know, fringes are processed and, and residuals are kept track of. So, so it's uh, definitely... Uh, actually, quick, quick question there, just because I'm curious now. Does the quote-unquote global rule one, is that just an actor thing? Or if a SAG member goes to work with, um, I don't know, a, a BAFTA maybe, or the equivalent unions in other jurisdictions around the world, do they all have their version of a quote-unquote global working rule, rule one? Or is that just what we call it here in Canada? No, no, it's it, it's uh, it's actually mandated by SAG. It's really it's a SAG requirement. They've basically sort of dictated to all of their members that if you're going to work uh, outside of the, the United States, um, you need to work uh, under under this Global Rule One um, mandate. And as far as I know, most other jurisdictions throughout the world have uh, an arrangement with with SAG to make that functional. Um, but you know, as for the details of whether there's any variances as to how that how that works, I, I'm not sure about that. But um, as my understanding is that it, it is fairly consistent everywhere. Fair enough. Got it. And helpful. Okay. Sorry, I, I, I cut you off there before. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add to that? Well, the, the, the only thing I would say is is that the um, the distinction between uh, work uh, for, uh, say, a, a Canadian producer or a, a foreign producer working with Global Rule 1 and working completely under SAG terms is that, uh, you, you know, there there are... There are, are sort of uh, less um, onerous conditions as to what uh, what, what uh, the producer has to comply with. So, uh, you know, in other words, if if you're working in the United States under SAG, there would be uh, provisions for for putting in, um, uh, you know, putting putting bonds up to SAG and and signing uh, uh, security documents and 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 a lot of other. Um, elements that would be required that aren't necessarily required when you're only signing up to hire, uh, you know, one or two actors as, as just part of, of uh, your show that's actually filming here. Right. So you, you defer, I guess, to your local jurisdictional rules when it comes to certain things like uh, residual bonds, um, as you mentioned, uh, and I, I assume there's a whole host of other things that can get fairly complicated, but also, but for the most part, it's their work, the U.S. actors are working under 
basic SAG rules like turnaround and meal penalties and all that kind of stuff, but uh, but there's kind of implanted onto, um, uh, I guess, the local union's jurisdiction when it comes to other things like uh, the remittance of fringes, uh, bonds, and that kind of stuff. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. And I I I I assume and that that very specific and detailed conversation could go on for hours because just trying to read the SAG book or the ACTRA book would take hours. So I don't want to spend too much time going into all the details there. But suffice it to say, for people who are listening, there are certain very material differences. And if you're taking a SAG actor out of their U.S. jurisdiction and supplanting them to film in whatever your local area is to familiarize yourself and to speak to a lawyer like Danny about this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, most experienced uh, experienced line producers, uh, of which I, I know you you in particular are, are one. Uh, you know, know these these distinctions distinctions uh, fairly fairly well, and, and it is very very relevant to um, kind of running a set. Uh, in particular, things like what uh, what you mentioned, the turnaround time, uh, which means the the length of time that that uh, you you have to allow uh, the actor to to rest uh, to have off time between, um, you know, uh, leaving, start, starting work and, and uh, leaving work. And so that's different between uh, ACTRA and, and SAG. And so you have to be able to reconcile that with your scheduling. Um, so let's let's talk about, I guess, the, the elephant in the room. Um, it's kind of a little baby elephant, really, because uh, <laughs> we're talking about indie films. But uh, the compensation structure that uh, a producer should be uh, going for just in I guess those big picture terms, what are the traditional ways compensation is structured for uh, your uh, marquee talent, and how do you approach that uh, as a thing? Um, well, uh, you know, it's it, it, we're typically working with uh, offers that are flat pictured picture deals uh, for, you know, for, we're looking to hire a lead uh, actor to provide, you know, be marquee talent uh, for, for one of these independent productions. Usually we're looking for uh, a flat picture deal, which basically means a, a, a set amount, a guaranteed amount that is usually well, well over the, the guild minimum scale rate that is enough to really cover all, all of their services for, uh, you know, let's say a particular time frame. You know, if the filming schedule is going to be three weeks, then it would be for that three weeks, and it would cover, uh, you know, everything that you would have to pay under the, the, the guild in terms of uh, minimum scale rate and uh, things like, you know, there's, there's uh, penalties that... that you apply under the guild rules, meal meal penalties and uh, travel costs, and there's all kinds of things that that uh, the guild requires you to pay for if you're paying at minimum scale. And usually, when you're hiring a marquee talent, um, you're not just paying them scale or scale plus a certain uh, you know increase. It's usually a, a, a ballpark guaranteed amount, so that you're having all of that covered within that that framework. So when it comes to, I guess, um, overscale deals, let's say, what are the things that you can bundle into that? 
because well, I mean, because, because I mean, let's 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 kind of be clear. I mean, most of the time, if we're talking about marquee actors, there's going to be an overscale rate that you're paying them. It may not be that much more. I mean, it, it but it's probably something. Uh, but even if you were paying them, say a flat, like a Schedule F deal, right, with SAG, yeah, would be a minimum of sixty-five thousand dollars. But you get more for that sixty-five thousand dollars than you would if you were just paying, you know, the 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 weekly minimums, right? So there's there's stuff that you can fold into that, right? Well, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, for for that, it, it covers all of your rehearsal time, all of your prep time, your travel days, uh, your post post production ADR days. Um, uh, you know, meal penalties usually covers overtime, and uh, sometimes will cover things like like turnaround in, infringements and 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 you know certain other penalties. Um, you know, to that effect. So, uh, you know, it, it, that way you, you, you typically do cover most of the, uh, of the, of the things that, that would come up. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So what, um, what rights are producers getting for, uh, for these service contracts? So when they, when they make a, a, a talent deal, um, where can they, where can they exploit it? And what are types of, I mean, these are two kind of separate questions, but they are intertwined, which is sort of the what rights do they get and where can they exploit those rights uh, subject to certain potential use fees. So right. uh, maybe you can kind of talk about those two baskets and, and how they, re- they, they relate. Okay. Well, again, this is a, one area where, where it kind of differs between your SAG actors and, and, and your uh, actor actors a, a little bit. Um, but in both cases, uh, basically um, the way it works is, is you, um, you, you sort of have a declared use. Uh, you, you declare whether this is you know, being produced as a, as a television uh, production or as a feature film for a theatrical release. And, um, you, you know, you have certain allowances for uh, not having to, to pay any, basically that's what's covered. Your declared use is what's covered under your, the, the fees that you're paying and doesn't trigger any type of residual or royalty or use fees. And then any subsequent use uh, in, in those other medias um, beyond your declared use, whether that's DVD or, you know, uh, video on demand or, or uh, you know, any kind of uh, new um, media that would then trigger use fee or residual. The, the term is use fees under ACTRA and residuals under, under SAG. And um, in, in Canada, under ACTRA, there are mechanisms where you can actually have a buyout uh, of a certain period of uh, four or five years by paying a, a premium up front um, as part of the, the fee. And uh, it can be either a buyout or an advance against use fees for some of those other uh, classes of, of, of media exploitation and distribution. And usually in Canada, under, under, those, um, under the actor jurisdiction, uh, most productions will take advantage of that uh, option to, to build that into their, their budget so that they are um, 
having having the flexibility to to and the, and are clearing the the project for as much as they they can in terms of the the scope of the of the distribution for for sag it, uh, actors it doesn't really work that way there there's no uh, built-in mechanism for for buying out or or advancing uh residual uh payments although uh, you know certainly uh, uh, many producers try to to build that into agreements contractually by, um, you know, basically splitting off a, a, a percentage of, of of the fee that they're paying. So, in other words, when I when I was mentioning that that they would offer, uh, you know, a guaranteed flat picture deal fee, um, let's say it's uh, you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is a lot you know, over scale, uh, they, they would um, try to allocate a certain portion of that to be applicable against against future residuals. And, th- and that is something that you can uh, negotiate to, to include, although it is, um, you know, typically difficult to achieve that in, in, in uh, negotiations with, with SAG actor uh, agents. Okay, so that's actually a really interesting point, because if you are going to spend overscale for uh for a sag actor or, or marquee actor that's that's working under sag jurisdiction uh i assume that if you're not accounting for the anticipated or potential residuals that that's a place that producers can really get tripped up because all of a sudden they you know they make exploitation on maybe theatrical or vod or television specifically and it runs 10 times and all of a sudden they owe just a lot of money, um, and maybe they they weren't prepared to either spend that money. They had no idea how much it was going to cost, and if they haven't built in what you're suggesting, which is to take the overscale amount of the contract and uh, make that uh, uh, an advance or an allocation towards future residuals, that producers could turn around one day and just owe a whack load of money. Well, yeah, that that definitely does happen, and a lot of producers do neglect uh, to do that. And I mean, it's it's easier said than done. Like like I say, most American uh, agents working in in Hollywood are are not sort of uh, accustomed or or, or kind of um, uh, open to to that uh, possibility of of applying. Uh, payment towards residuals, they kind of look at it like that's, you know, the, the overscale payment is, is being paid because, you know, you're, you're paying for a premium marquee talent and that's part of the deal and that residuals are a separate matter from, from that. But it's definitely uh, something worth uh, trying to, to negotiate into, into a deal. Um, in, in particular, because you're right, you can find yourself, a producer can find themselves on the hook for substantial uh, residuals down the line and, and, and most producers don't really realize, independent producers don't realize that, that they're responsible for that not uh not the even if they do get a distributor on board um typically the distributor um, won't take responsibility for paying those those residuals um there there is a mechanism where again you can negotiate with the distributor to assume those residual obligations as a distribution expense and sag certainly in, encourages producers to do that, and and if if you get a distribution deal with a, a major studio, for instance, they they will assume those those obligations. But uh, you know, for most smaller budget independent productions that are doing deals with smaller independent distributors, 
that that is a lot harder to to negotiate. So and and the producers need to keep in mind that that those residuals are triggered based on this distributor gross revenues, not on money that actually ends up in the producer's pockets. So like you say, the producer could find themselves on the hook for residuals, despite the fact that they're not actually seeing any, any revenues in, in their pocket. Uh, two things come up in that, in that statement. Um, the first is, that just intrinsically has always seemed just so ridiculously unfair that the project could be exploited and it's the calculation of residuals is such that it's based on gross, as you say, but the producer doesn't see a dime. Have you ever seen a case where that's actually happened and what, practically speaking, has happened after that? Because I, I think that's one of the things that you don't really think about up front. And then again, you turn around one day and you're like, shit, it played 10 times on TV. I owe $50,000. I don't have $50,000. But yet the film went on to make substantially more than that. But you just don't or haven't seen, you know, any money from it. Uh, yeah, I, I have seen it happen. And I have seen uh, uh, good and bad bad results. I mean, t- typically when that happens, you, you, uh, as a producer, you try to work out an arrangement with, with your distributor to, um, you know, to help out um, with, with uh, those obligations if, if there are rev- revenues that have been, have been generated. Uh, and have your distributor write that off as a distribution expense, or uh, you know, in some circumstances, I, I've seen producers go try to negotiate with SAG uh, to to work out some kind of settlement. But uh, you know, typically, uh, the, the the unions are are not particularly sympathetic to to the producers in that situation uh, you know that they look at it as being you know that's what the the uh, collective agreement was negotiated to contemplate happening and and it's uh, uh, you know widely widely uh, understood and and uh, available information that that's the case so uh, they they do treat it as the producer's obligation and and they do have departments that you know that spend time tracking those those payments and um you know looking to have them paid so and this is a little bit beyond the scope of this conversation but for those who are interested that that want to i guess pre-calculate or do their own kind of back of the napkin calculation of how much they think the residuals might be for their show what would you suggest or how would you suggest they go about just trying to figure that out because it can get very complicated and I'm not even sure like if, if I were to go and do this, I'm not actually sure where I would turn to go at practically figure out, okay, I think it's going to be because it changes, right? If it's five plays on TV, it's this much. If it's 10 plays on TV, it's this much. If it's like everything is, it's very, it's a very complicated subject. So it, what would you it, it suggest? Is, it, it is complicated. And yeah, and yes, the percentages change depending on, on the, the medium and, and, uh, the volume and, and the, jurisdiction and and whatnot but i guess if i was to simplify it as much as possible uh for actors i would say you need to anticipate uh you know setting uh, setting aside about five percent of 
you know, that's, it's, it's, it's actually works out to be a little bit less than that. I think, um, you know, between three and four and a half percent, uh, in most cases, but you know, if you want to be safe and have a ballpark figure, that's what I would say. Count on 5% of, of, of uh, the gross revenues uh, outside of your declared use to uh, end up being applicable as, as residual payments. That's a great rule of thumb uh, and I think a very worthy consideration for those who are listening or trying to track their their distribution reporting. Um, so just a couple more things, if I may, while we still have just a little bit of time left here. Sure. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, uh, some of the, the, the passive royalty considerations that producers would want to incorporate and that agents would look for in negotiating a contract uh, for a film. So yeah, the things like uh, like bonuses, net profit oh, participations, uh, right. that that kind of stuff. Okay, well, yeah, I mean that that is definitely a, a very uh, key negotiation point um, for for independent productions that are trying to hire marquee talent, um, in particular when uh, they can't necessarily offer uh, as much as as uh, the actor may be used to receiving as their sort of quoted uh, rate for uh you know an upfront fee so in, in some cases that, that the actors will um accept a, a reduced fee so to speak from from their quoted rate in exchange for um you know taking some form of back end participation which can either f- uh, be in the form of uh, profit participation or a, a box office bonus um, and and those are typically the, the mechanisms we we use, and um, you know that that it also can be a complicated process in, in terms of negotiating the actual definition of what uh, you know what net profits mean or whether it's based on something that's called an adjusted gross definition, and um, you know the reason being that that uh, you know the history of profit participations out of the U.S studio system has uh, I'm sure many of your listeners have, have seen you know many reports about how uh, you know films that have supposedly made millions and millions of dollars didn't report any profits because of you know the particular accounting methods that those studios have used to kind of hide um, revenues and, and inflate costs and and uh, you know create uh, an accounting mechanism that that avoids having to to pay out those profit participations. So that yeah, is certainly you know what just, I'm just going to stop you right there. It's just it's funny you, you should bring that up. And for those that who are interested in that specific point, we happened to interview the author of uh, Hollywood. Uh, it, it, basically, it was a book on Hollywood accounting. Uh, a guy named Stephen Stills. Uh, mm-hmm. Who wrote uh, Understanding Hollywood's Creative Accounting Practices, and he's he's a guy who runs an audit firm that just accounts on uh, on net profit participation. So anybody who's listening who wants to listen to that episode, we actually interviewed him in episode six. So uh, just go to the feed, scroll down to the bottom, and you'll 
be able to check out that episode with Stephen Stills, Sills, and that was a really cool episode. So anyway, please continue. I'm, I'm, Very good. So I don't, so I don't need to get into the the, the nitty gritty points about uh, you know defining uh, profit uh, definitions, but you know, the, my point is that it is def- that is definitely uh, you know a, a complicated point in the negotiation, and uh, you know from from the actors agents point of view, they want to make sure that they're getting something that is meaningful and that uh, you know is consistent with and fair with other profit participation so that is 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 something that we do negotiate both in terms of the definition and the timing of payments and how it's reported and how uh you know what the the rights to audit uh, the producers' books might be to, to keep everyone honest, and all of those those things come up in that. And uh, you know, an important consideration from the producers' point of view in negotiating those those terms is is that you better make sure that you're actually going to be able to keep track of what you're agreeing to. So, you know, if you negotiate different profit participation definitions for all kinds of different actors and different shows, like you need to have a, a way to track all of that. You, you don't necessarily have, uh, as an independent producer, a separate accounting department to, to, to deal with all of that. Usually you're, you're wearing that hat yourself or you might have, um, you know, a consultant or, or a, a you know, an accountant that uh, works works for hire to do those things. So, uh, from an administrative point of view, you have to make sure not to get in over your head in in, in what you're committing to. Um, you know, once you've done a, a number of projects. Uh, and in terms of box things like box office bonuses, uh, that that is another. Um, a way to kind of give a, a an incentive to to actors to to work for less money up front and have a, have a bonus if the uh, either if the, if if uh, you reach a certain box office gross revenue or sometimes there's bonuses based on you know a, a sale being made to a particular. Um, Network that you know, if it's we're talking about a television project that that perhaps is being produced in one place and and uh, you know, but doesn't have a deal in uh, the U.S. Let's say that you might have a, a bonus that that would apply uh, only if if uh, a U.S. network came on board and things like that. So those those do get negotiated, and uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind with that is that the, you know those bonuses are typically um, flat amounts that also are not necessarily based on um, contingent on, on the revenue being in your pocket. So you have to make sure that the, you know there's a safety valve so that you will actually be able to pay those when the the triggering event happens. And so that is something that uh, again you can try and. Uh, have a distributor participate in. If you already do have a distributor on board, then uh, giving box office bonuses is, is something that the distributors, um, you know, would want to have input on and, and potentially have approval over if, if they're the ones that are going to end up being on the hook for that. Um, so, I, first of all, that's that, that's all, I think, really important considerations for producers. Um, and that is... I think such a rich conversation. Again, something that we aren't spending as much time on it as I would like to. But I think maybe I'll, in the 
in a future episode, I'll do a just a complete podcast on exactly, you know, Holly, I don't want to say Hollywood accounting, but, you know, how these net profit and adjusted gross receipts and how all these def- definitions actually practically work, yeah. you know, on like literally on, on the page, sort of like walk through some of these definitions. I think that'd be a really interesting conversation. So um, last question for you, and, and this is this is kind of a, I don't want to say it's an omnibus question, but it, it, it definitely it definitely covers a lot, which is one of the things that, that I'm seeing a lot these days in contracts, and um, it's something that you probably see a lot more than I do just because the scale and volume of stuff that, that you're doing, it's the, I don't, I don't want to say the, the runaway additional contractual elements, but if, you know, it, on independent films, prices are depressed, let's, let's just say. Um, so they're not getting, you know, millions and millions of dollars. They're maybe getting, you know, hundreds of thousands or less, but there are all these other elements that a producer needs to budget for, right? Mm-hmm. That, that the talent is going to ask for, and you know, they're going to ask for up front. and they just, it just, it's things like, I don't know, additional plane tickets and, yeah. uh, like, you know, high per diems or a certain, you know, driver or a hairstylist, like all these other things. I mean, just wondering if you could just kind of just talk about all those additional considerations that uh, producers really need to be thinking about before they even enter into the contract negotiations. Because you just, you, you know, they're going to come up and you need to budget for them and you need to consider them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, what we call sort of the perks of, uh, of the contract are, are really uh, important factors. And even though individually they're all sort of seem relatively minor uh, from someone like your perspective working as a, as a line producer, uh, having to budget for all of those things, they definitely all add up. And, um, you know, the, the agents are typically looking to get as much as they can. Uh, and uh, those things are not necessarily in the budget for an independent production and we're talking about things like you know rental cars and uh, um, you know the size of, of uh, the dressing room trailer this is always a you know a big issue whether it's going to be uh, you know a double a double wagon or a triple wagon or a star wagon and um, you know whether you, you're going to give first first class um, uh, uh, plane tickets and uh, tickets to to this you know to the to the family extra tickets to the family and uh, um, you know hotel suites instead of hotel rooms and you know obviously on very big budget pictures working with big stars those things you, you know we read stories about all of their demands that are are uh, you know crazy and 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 uh, you know we're not working on that kind of level but even at the independent level where we're just talking about you know very mundane things like the size of your dressing room that makes a big difference to a production and in particular when you're talking about uh you know the relationship between actors so you know uh, there's there's a lot of egos that that uh exist on a film set and you have to be very careful about giving something to one lead performer without giving it to 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 the other lead performers because they you know get uh, tied up in knots about that so if you offer uh, you know a bigger trailer to to one lead uh, more often than not you're going to end up uh, spiraling and and having to to do that with with other uh, lead performers and and I find negotiating with 
agents that they're they're often more concerned with making sure that that's the case that that they're being that their client is being treated on you know what's called a most favored nations basis uh, um, no less favorably than any of the other actors in terms of all of these perks then then they actually care about what the perks are so they don't care necessarily that their uh, actor is going to have a, a triple wagon trailer as long as nobody else is going to get anything better so well, you know, once you start agreeing to to, to certain uh, favored nations ties, then that can kind of you know tie you up with with your obligations, and and that does become uh, you know a, a big factor. Danny, this has been great. Uh, I for everybody who's who's listening, um, I'm really appreciative, Danny, of your time. You've just given us uh, really a ton of information. Uh, so thank you very much for taking your time to come on this show. For for those who may want to connect with you or your firm, um, not that I'm guaranteeing you're going to get a ton of business out of this, because I'm not, uh, <laughs> but for anybody who would want to connect with you, what would be the best way for them to get in touch? Uh, they can check us out on, on the Internet, on our website, uh, www.hallweber.com. And uh, your, your partner, Lon Hall, uh, and yourself, Danny Weber, some of the uh, uh, two of the best entertainment lawyers, at least here in, in, in Toronto. And uh, uh, Danny and I, we have worked together before. You are an awesome lawyer, uh, a mensch, and thank you for your time uh, today on the show. My pleasure, anytime.